0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Joined today by Ian Smith, company's editor. How are you doing?
1: Not too bad, John. How are you? Very good, thank you.
0: Bradley Gerard, How are you, Bradley?
2: I'm good. It's been a busy week. Has, hasn't it?
0: Yes, lots of results. Lots and lots of results.
2: Plus the autumn statement. And the autumn statement. The last autumn statement. The last autumn statement to be replaced by an autumn budget and a spring statement.
0: Yeah, I think it made sense, but uh, yeah. you wouldn't have thought so at the time. We, we all listened to this in the office, of course, uh, it being an important fiscal event. And uh, yeah, there was much, uh, much laughing and jeering, as there always is in Parliament, but more so than usual. But actually, I think it makes sense. and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to the autumn budget very shortly, because it forms a big part of the news section this week. Um, so, we are unfortunately not able to be joined by Alex Newman, who's written the cover feature about Amazon, because he's in Spain, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he's, uh, he's on a site visit to one of the resources companies that he covers.
0: Yeah, he's going to see one of the oldest mines in Europe called Rio Tinto near uh, Seville. Famous mine.
1: Famous mine. That's one of know, my top five.
0: One of the top five mines. <laughs> Separate <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah. um, that's so, yes, unfortunately, Alex is not uh, able to be here. We we can kind of fill in some of the some of the, the blanks around the feature because I think it will undoubtedly come across in some of the results we discuss uh, very
1: shortly. Definitely. And Amazon as a topic and as a disruptive force is one that we've talked about a fair amount on this podcast. But what's really great about the feature, together with Harriet and Theron, it is that you really get a sense of the risks attached to other stocks that are exposed to Amazon. There's a great table in the yeah. piece where Alex and um, Harriet and Theron try and grade the impact that um, Amazon might have on some of the different sectors.
0: Indeed and you know it kind of does beg the question which Alex also tries to answer is whether you know if you could invest in one stock and one stock only should that stock be Amazon and you know there is a, there is a strong case for for actually you know, that being the case. Um, let's come on to that in a minute. Let's start with uh, the news this week. All statement in a minute What else we got Bradley?
2: An interesting little stat that the FT picked up on through a bit of analysis was um, the fact that four of the most watched of indices in the US all touched um, a record high this week, which has only happened, um, well, the last time it happened was in 1999. I think I it just, 1999, yeah. I remember
0: it well. It all turned out so brilliantly after <laughs> Party-like,
2: it's 1999. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just an interesting stat. I mean, what one could argue, it doesn't mean very much, but it, it's just interesting that there's that much bullishness around or you can perceived bullishness in spite of um, what's been a tumultuous year in terms of politics and that sort of thing obviously with the um, EU referendum vote uh, Mr. Trump's election to the highest office in the land not our land obviously the land Did, over the pond but...
0: well the highest office in the world you could argue arguably I mean this is not what people predicted was going to happen if Trump were to be elected, we wanted the status quo candidate. We wanted Hillary Clinton, who would make sure, you know, business as usual was uh, was the order of the day. Stock markets could carry on their, their merry dance and uh, everything would be OK. But, but actually, stock markets have arguably responded better. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I can't imagine the response to a Hillary victory would have been the same.
2: No, I guess, uh, I mean, uh, there's, there are so many reasons why the stock market could rise it could be that people see trump as more of a risk and might seem odd but because of that that could be good for stocks it might mean the central bank might do more stimulus or not move on rates or whatever but he
0: doesn't it, but, but but that's kind of the opposite narrative that we're also getting certainly when we look at the bond market that that actually we think that this will encourage the central banks to
1: actually start pushing up rates and th- i actually covered this in my column last week and i think that's a reason why To expect the equity market um, to factor in all of the risks of a Trump presidency is just far too much. And the assumption running up to the vote that a Trump victory would be bad for markets, I just didn't really see the reason why that was, especially given that he is looking at cutting taxes across a range of income, investments, inheritance um, and business taxes, importantly. Um, and also, he's talking about infrastructure investment that could help business. So the idea that uh, you know a candidate that comes in that will cut tax will be very bad for the economy straight away didn't really make sense. I do understand it when it comes to the trade deals. He could act unilaterally to affect, as we've talked about in this podcast before, some of the trade deals um, that America has and the ones it's writing, as he's already done since the vote. Um, but the idea that Trump would be a net bad for um, the equity market wasn't quite clear. Um, So, yeah, to Bradley's point, perhaps you've had a relief rally. But I think it reduces the uncertainty, was my argument, is that prior to the election, the uncertainty was you had one of these two people with a range of policies. And after the election, you just have one person and what they can get through uh, the legislature. So mm. I really think, you know, in some ways, you could argue that uncertainty has come down a bit, maybe a contrarian view. Because he's
0: a very predictable guy, is Donald Trump.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but hey. he might not be, but I guess there's a certain element of predictability within the, as Ian said, the legislature. Like, yes, the president can potentially do what he or she wants, but there, there are, as has been talked about before, the safeguards of it being having having to go through, you know, two houses of...
0: Yeah, so, but, you know, some, one of the things he's talking about that everyone's got very excited about is this massive infrastructure splurge. And we're hearing much the same thing here in, in the UK. Um, some of that was within the awesome state, but I mean, not not a splurge on the scale that, that potentially they're talking about in the US, but but some spending, nevertheless, that's going to cost a lot of money. Um, but, you know, I, I just... I think we, we're perhaps oversimplifying the reaction or, or the likelihood of, of what's going to happen. Yeah, you know, this is my worry about markets sometimes. They've kind of they've oversimplified the kind of cause effect the, the narrative is yes, the, loads of money spent on infrastructure, good news for all. And I just I just worry that, that we've kind of run ahead of, of ourselves again here.
2: Well, that's partly why I found the stats so interesting because it uh, you know, a lot of people who maybe watch markets very closely and analyze a lot of data might well see this as a sign of um, you know, a real peak in markets. And Irrational say, exuberance, maybe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it was very interesting, anyway.
0: Yeah, no, no, it really is. We'll be watching it closely. Um, I mean, this ha- does have uh, implications for a number of UK-listed stocks who are involved in the uh, construction, uh, particularly infrastructure, construction
1: space. Um, what we can say is that political rhetoric has moved from... Fiscal conservatism to more spending on infrastructure. Whether that comes through in a huge amount of projects is another matter. And I think one thing that's very important in the UK is that some of the major infrastructure projects require um, a fair amount of political decision making and some quite tough decisions to actually happen. And we know, all know the major projects that are out there. And obviously, we've had a decision about Heathrow, albeit that's still going to take a while. But um There are other areas where we need to then see the decisions. It's all very well to talk about money. There's also a lot of institutional money that's prepared to go into infrastructure, but you need the projects, and that's what any investor would say.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you know, an interesting project that was recently given the go-ahead in the UK is obviously Hinkley Point. Um, Now, that has the go-ahead, you know, in in all respects. I mean, I I guess... uh, it's shovel-ready, as they would call it. But there's another project. But the was- government,
1: even on that, the government flip-flop about it. You know, the new Theresa May government coming in, wasn't sure about it, wasn't sure about the Chinese involvement. Is a good example of actually something that was pretty much ready to go under David Cameron's administration. And then the new government came in and looked like maybe they were going to introduce a stumbling block, then took away that stumbling block. But if that's going to be the path of future policy over infrastructure, that there's going to be that kind of horse trading ahead of it that doesn't bode well for a series of quick decisions.
0: Well, I I, I would say that uh, that was quite a sensible approach to that particular project because it is big and it is contentious and, you know, it is a new government and I think they they quite sensibly... They didn't take that long to reach a a conclusion in the grand scheme of political thinking and infrastructure projects. I also think it was contingent upon what was going to happen at other nuclear uh, potential sites in the UK, one of which is near my house, Bradwell. And they were given... As far as I understand, sure the Chinese were given assurances that that's going to happen. Still, uh, I tell you what, they have got to get that through planning. So, you know, and, and this brings up the whole issue that you can have all these wonderful infrastructure ideas, but actually, particularly in the UK, NIMBYism is a very strong force.
2: Yeah, it is, and the I guess one of the sort of key numbers kind of come out, or one of the key points to come out of the autumn awesome statement was this sort of new investment fund, as he called it, to kind of help promote growth and help promote productivity and that type of thing. I, tell,
0: I have to say, Bradley, before, before you go on, I, I I felt that here's £400 million. This is going to... I don't even know if that was the figure. I think it's irrelevant. Uh, this is this is how we're going to improve productivity. Productivity and money are not like... One is not the answer for the other. I, I don't quite understand how money, chucking money at something is going to improve productivity. I mean, he was,
2: he was talking about, I guess, his, his hope and his idea is is um, on, a, on a tangible level to um, improve things like transport networks and roads so people can get to work more quickly and therefore work potentially more efficiently because they'll be at work more focused for fewer hours, that I'll, sort of thing. I'll get my best work done on the train. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe your train journey will be better because you're always moaning about that. <laughs> um, it takes a long time. I get things, a lot of work done. And things like, you know, faster broadband, there are there are an incredible incredible now number of self-employed people, many of whom may well be working from home, who do not have um, the speed of internet they need to conduct their business properly. Things like that could improve productivity. So you're right, improving productivity via money is not necessarily a linear a linkage. But there are things that he is trying to, uh, Philip Hammond, is trying to target to improve to help um, productivity rise, whether it will happen, of course. We
0: jump straight into the autumn statement, even though we said we were going to talk about other stuff first. But hey, whatever. I mean, yeah. So we covered the broadband piece uh, online.
1: So what... City Fibre is a really interesting company that does um, lays fibre broadband networks to businesses and consumers uh, kind of around the regions. And that saw its, uh, That company saw its share price rise quite strongly on the day. Um, and I suppose, in addition to what you're saying, the, there's the... Um, promised investment the bt and open bt open is going to make in the network too but it's so important i saw this statement from red Row, the house builder saying that when they did a survey of their potential customers that f- um, broadband connectivity was the most important amenity they thought about when buying a house which i suppose you would say that's pretty straightforwardly true but that's over shops you know that people were given the option to so it's so key all these things linked together with the autumn statement the house builders the broadband connectivity the infrastructure to boost the productivity but in is, the is that happens.
0: really what makes germany so much more efficient you know is output that so much you know better i think it's something like 20 percent 25 percent better than uk is it really
1: down to good broadband connections I mean, is there something more something fundamental going on in the way businesses are run Maybe, but I do think you can be too reductive in just saying it's just broadband. I think the infrastructure point is important. If you look at the major productivity gains historically in like the US and the UK, it's been related to big advances in the infrastructure, and allowing businesses electrification of businesses, allowing people to fly from place to place. And just as someone who lives in East London and is waiting for another bridge across the Thames, you see how much time is wasted by businesses in terms of getting around our small country. What do you need to go to South London for?
0: <laughs> That's a lot on the other side of the Thames, John. Actually, I say that we uh, we are in South London. It's as far as I get in South London. I
1: must admit. Um, yeah, I, I get the point. We've got the mayor of South London actually in the booth. Dom, the mayor of SE1.
0: He's correct.
1: <laughs> Self-appointed. <laughs>
0: sorry you've got the king of Essex in the studio
1: <laughs> royalty
0: um, anyway listen uh, it, is, it is yeah it's interesting I'm not sure these sound like marginal gains to me uh, rather than like
1: massive we won increases. the Olympic cycling with marginal
0: gains oh, okay, same same thing, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well done well maybe Dave Brailsford should be prime minister <laughs> I mean you're Actually, right that's not
2: a bad idea <laughs> you're right it, it is it is incremental and I think Philip Hammond had little space to move really though he has done a bit you know He's created a bit more spending headroom, albeit he's going to borrow more to do it. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, at least the things in a way you say it's not a huge big thing. Maybe that's maybe that's positive. Maybe smaller things that seem more achievable might be achieved rather than us talking about big grand scale things that he throw HS two just get. Bogs down in political brit back and just don 't don 't come to don 't come to fruition i like but, the,
0: but, i like the idea I like the philosophical optimism there <laughs> well uh, what,
1: what I think John, what I agree with you is that i don 't think the announcements made really turn the dial in terms of infrastructure, and I think that the rising cost of borrowing with guilt yields. Uh, on an upward path. That's
0: another matter altogether. another matter altogether.
1: a lot. And what newspapers have really stressed, I think rightly, is the scale to which the public finances are in a worse state than under George Osborne. I don't want really to get... It's all political about it in terms of the factors there. But the reality of that, if you're thinking we're going to borrow a lot more to invest in infrastructure, I think it w- was quite difficult for Philip Hammond, as the new Chancellor, to... Announced an absolutely huge infrastructure spending, you know, the likes of FDR's New Deal in terms of, you know, the amount that was built. It didn't, on the day, result in any really material share price changes amongst any of the companies that were exposed to these sectors, which is very much different from um, the impact that we've seen in the US
0: Yeah, actually there was uh, a certain section of the market that did uh, suffer a bit of an impact from uh, Philip Hammond's uh, awesome statement and before we go on, I think it was quite a sensible uh, statement I think he did a good job uh, quite frankly under the circumstances which you would not uh, perhaps believe if you ran to the diatribes of negative commentary uh, elsewhere, I thought he did a good job well done, Philip, and you made some good jokes, even though apparently he hadn't previously made a joke since 1978. <laughs> However, one sector did get hammered, and it was the property sector.
2: This had been pre-sort of well leaked, I guess, that um, there would be a ban on letting agent fees or fees that they charge to tenants. Uh, the kind of the comments after after the announcement were kind of to the effect that, you know, it's almost like a balloon. Like if you squeeze one end of it, then another end will get fatter. So the letting agents are going to find the money they need to cover the cost of doing things like credit checks from somebody. And the chances are it will now be the landlord rather than the tenant.
0: So this is the policy to ban letting agency fees?
2: Yeah, on on tenants. On tenants.
0: Yeah. I haven't let a property for a long time, so I let's, you know
2: rented
1: rented even so imagine, Let one either <laughs> so imagine any kind of fee that you can make up uh, as a letting agent um ceo and then just levy that on a tenant it's very easy you can charge a fee for anything counting the amount of forks in the in the uh, drawer you can, you can really charge anything because you have a customer that has to deal with you because they want to rent a flat and you can charge them anything and as bradley says a lot has of comm- it really got that bad
0: well, I, as I said, I haven't rented. I haven't rented a property since two thousand and one, and I don't remember it being that bad. The the, the levies imposed. I mean, they always tried to nick your deposit, but uh, Dom over in the control room, you're you're a frequent rental mover. Yes, I am. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's awful.
2: They charge you quite literally, as Ian said, for anything. Yeah, we are ready to move, and we have stayed with the same landlords because I can't bring myself to pay all these extra fees we've just moved into one of their other properties
0: so this policy that Philip Hammond has introduced was, was kind of dismissed by many as kind of tinkering and you know it, it, a bit of a showboating but really wouldn't amount to much but you would it sounds like you would disagree with that though
2: yes i'm concerned that those fees that the tenant no longer pays will just be put onto the rent
1: That is exactly, that is the most cogent criticism of it, that it passes straight in terms of extra rental charges to the tenant as the changes to stamp duty and the other changes to tax relief that we've seen on landlords. It's a classic argument against it. It's also a good reason never to do anything against landlords. But I would disagree with that to an extent. So the letting agent that is dealing with the tenant will add on loads of fees because they know they can fleece the tenant as much as they wish if we're talking about the worst practices and there's lots of good letting agents out there. And whereas, lots of good
0: landlords as well. And lots of
1: good landlords. Many of whom well. are readers. Exactly, lots of good landlords as well and this is not this is a policy that's designed I think at the worst practices in the market. Now if you say okay well they'll pass that straight on to the landlord. But if you're a letting agent the landlord is a client that can go elsewhere to other letting agents. So the idea that you will charge the same extortionate fees, if you happen to be charging extortionate fees, on your landlord client as you would charge on a tenant, I don't think is very rational. And I think we've seen that now in a couple of the company pronouncements, haven't we, Bradley, today?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, on on the announcement, the the share I'm extrapolating
1: from those. No, no,
2: you're you're right there. I mean, on... on during the autumn statement things like fox and share price in particular was was getting a bit of a hammering so this morning we had something from belvoir and purple bricks and belvoir were talking about a potential eight percent hit to gross profits from the letting
0: agency fees yeah i mean obviously this is
2: an estimate based on uh, potentially a moving target because the thing we're talking about is a proposal it is generally believed that, that this will happen maybe there'll be a sort of a slight lightening of it, but um, there is a belief it will happen. But yeah, so obviously already the letting agents are starting to try and quantify the potential impact of this. Uh,
1: and they've said, to be fair to them, you know, up to 8%, haven't they? Yeah. In terms of it, it might be less. But obviously they're doing the sums on, okay, how, many of, how much of these fees do we charge? Pretty simple calculation. Then how much... 8% just, percent no, no, of no, their no, entire areas? I don't think it's that simple. I think it's how much do we charge and how much can we pass on to the landlords instead? Because some things do need to be paid for. Um, and then the difference, I would say, is probably 8% of gross profits, up to 8% of gross profits. So I don't completely buy the argument that it all just passes on in rent. But at the same time, that is definitely a possibility. It's a an easy route, basically.
2: The- but, as you say, the market could function. And that market is, as you say, landlords going, well, that sounds a bit steep. I'm going to look for someone else. But what it
0: sounds like to me is that these these fees are a huge,
1: huge component of their revenues. But up to 8 well, yeah. That's, that's a significant component. Yeah, especially because, you know, that's not all... Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. It's it's significant. I mean, that's a significant amount. The fact that it's up to 8% suggests, yeah, it could be less. They might be... Or they might be able to pass on a bit more. They could be able to pass on a bit more. And, and to be honest, I think that as a policy, it might just take some of the worst parts out of the market in terms of the more extortionate. And not all letting agents are like this. Not all landlords are extortionate. And also all. the
2: fee could be worth it. I mean, you know, people pay choose... People, the landlords might choose to pay the fee. The fee might stay the same at Belvoir because their service is fantastic. And that's something
1: that Jonas Crossland, our property correspondent, has made that point is that, you know, a lot of owners of. Letting properties are not bothered. They have gone through a stamp duty rise. They might have gone through a tax relief change. And now this is just another thing. Yeah, it might slightly impact, but they're comparing the yield that they get on owning that property to a government bond yield or what another kind of fixed income or fixed income alternative investment and saying, oh, fair enough. I'll just let the person that manages the lettings deal with that. Yeah, I get a bit more of a charge. But you, you couldn't blame them for saying, well, I'll just factor that into my income return.
0: Still money not going into their pockets. Yeah, exactly. Still makes buy and as asset cl- class uh, a little bit less attractive. And it's still,
1: before. and the argument against it is still that it uh, disincentivizes people to invest in property, and we need more rental properties because we have more people needing somewhere to live.
0: So, what are, they, what, are the, what are these fees actually for? I don't, I don't know. What are they actually for? Things what like
2: checking references and well, should be the inventory and fees and that sort of thing. So you
0: have to pay to get your own references checked. Yes, <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh what about so, so what about the I uh, the, the, the household inventory that uh, you're paying for them to to make sure you haven't nicked anything as well. Yes. Brilliant. So uh, yeah. it's it's extraor- it is extraordinary. It is. I mean it's funny, funny enough these And when we talked about before how uh, Foxton's, for example, had been suffering because of a a fall in transaction volumes in the UK, Uh, and and we'd always seen the lettings business as a a useful uh, counterbalance to to, to perhaps weakening transaction volumes, not so anymore.
1: Exactly right. And countrywide... Another state agency came out with a slight profit warning today, saying that transaction volumes are lower, as you've said, um, but also in 2017 they might be even lower than in 2016. So that the ability of the letting agencies to bail out the state agencies is is bit tougher than had been expected and if you look at growth businesses like purple bricks the hybrid estate agency
0: yeah why they why did they get well they dragged a, into
1: this because they have a nascent lettings business right. but that is also a big part of their growth and they make that argument that the letting agency business provides you with liquidity at a time when transaction volumes are down in the estate agency so i suppose the analyst must be looking at the proposed growth of purple bricks and saying okay well it's a bit tougher on the letting agency but at the same time they're a low-cost operator and you just wonder whether these kind of changes what they'll do is take out some of the you know more extreme as we're saying charges within the market and then maybe you know, an operator like the purple bricks like the zopa and the other low-cost operators might be seen as landlords as even more um the kind of business they want to go with to yeah. things down."
0: I remember there was a lot of uh, a lot of scepticism about the purple bricks model when uh, when they floated, um, and we wrote about it. I think Jonas before we uh, before it actually floated, Jonas Crossan kind of previewed that that business coming to market with a uh, with the property matters column, and he uh, got some abuse on uh, on the website um, because I think a lot of people just saw it as just another property fly by night. But I see a lot of signs, a lot of Purple Bricks signs popping
1: up. Yeah, exactly. And they're growing market share and we've seen that in the data. I actually also, to fess up, wrote a column saying reasons not to buy into Purple Bricks. Did you, in? I did. Oh, but, uh, you know, um, we had Purple Bricks on a, a buy at that point and Jonas has um, very much, that's borne out his um, prediction. There are questions with Purple Bricks as to... The model that they have in terms of the conversion rate is the big question. right? They have a conversion rate of the amount of instructions they get to sales, but the conversion rate is based on sales agreed subject to contract. And as anyone knows that sells a house, that's not the end of the story. So one of the questions with them is, are they helping people in their low cost model get from that point of sales subject to contract all the way through to completion? and we don't see the completion rate the proper mm. completion rate so there are worries with purple bricks that they're growing incredibly fast yeah they're gaining market share they've got a very um interesting and and compelling business model but i'd like to see a couple of years down the line when we see the customer service come through whether people are saying okay and they really helped me out in that very important final third
0: yeah i mean we 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 my family has just sold uh, a property um and we use the traditional estate agent, paying the full, you know, the 1% of uh, a reasonably large number, which seems like a lot of money, considering the amount of work they do. But then you don't really understand the amount of work they do. You know, it was it was a bit of a difficult
1: transaction. Um, and they have an aligned incentive. That's the other major difference with you. They want to sell the house for more because they get a greater proportion because it's a percentage charge with purple bricks and the other um kind of hybrids where they um will take a fixed fee the problem is that they might be incentivized to just get a f- get a sale done Get so, the
0: money in walk walk, walk away and uh, when there's work and I've to be seen done with still, one of their yeah. competitors yeah
1: and i've seen with one of their competitors um a case study on their website oh it's brilliant i had a valuation i had one visit and the house sold and for me that makes me think did they slightly undervalue that house because you had one viewing and the house sold? It's the quickest way to sell a house. The, <laughs> but did, were they in a were they in a hurry to sell? So I, I, there are questions. There's also the fact they have these local property, just to go through all the bare points, and I think there are a lot of pull points too. Uh, they also have these local property experts, region by region. Or do they have the expertise of your local estate agency? But I have to say, I think that, people are increasingly moving to these fixed fee models. People don't want to pay huge commission anymore for certain things. And we see that in the investment industry when it comes to investment advice. People are moving away from wanting to pay huge commissions for things. So I think they are definitely in a growth trend. Mm. Uh, But whether they are doing right by their clients and they are getting the kind of conversion to actual complete sales, I think we don't quite know yet. Uh, But, yeah, I've been proved wrong on that so far. So
0: Yeah. Tricky one to assess uh what else you got Bradley
2: um yeah I guess we've I mean, sticking with the autumn statement stuff um i mean we've got we've got a, a couple of pages of news coverage and there's a lot on the website as well for people listening who want to want a bit more than we're able to sort of get across in the podcast but um Chris Diller has done a great piece on sort of the more economic-y aspects of the autumn statement and um the sort of yeah, impact of while we're borrowing more, actually, there's an interesting sort of um, which factor which you points out that actually debt to GDP is going to peak at 90.2%, but then start falling, even though we are borrowing more, because you've got this sort of negative yields, but positive GDP growth. So as long as we don't go and borrow even more than the more we are borrowing, or we don't have a recession, then actually the the ratio of debt to GDP will start to come down in about four to five years' time, which is quite an interesting point Chris raises. And smaller things, I suppose. Um, there was a new NSI bond which was launched, uh, which for savers they might be happy about, although the reaction from the industry was pretty uh, lukewarm. Muted. Really. Yes, three thousand <laughs> pound limit and also only 2.2%. So 2.2% is fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean
0: 3, a 3000 relative... limit, a 3000 limit is pathetic.
2: Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's because with the pensioner bonds is a similar iteration uh, the website of an and I crashed. So maybe tra- maybe the government was actively trying to disincentivize too much interest there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's i mean, seriously it doesn't touch the sides uh, of no. uh, the problem that most people have with where to put their money.
2: Exactly. Um and another I guess slightly related point to that on to sort of the putting money in investment and Pensions, um, there was this um, really nicely named um, money purchase annual allowance. Um, I'm asleep already. I know, (laughs) but bear with me. I'll do my best to put this in a nutshell. Effectively, if you turn 55 and started drawing down a pension... You're able to put money back into that pension and um, £10,000 worth was tax free. The government is proposing to reduce that to £4,000 and that actually could be quite a problem for asset managers who are looking to rely more on drawdown products because what this potentially will do, and it it is a consultation, but if this does go ahead, it will obviously prevent people from drawing down some money and thinking, actually, I might want to put some more back into my pension, which would then obviously be caught, of course, be run more than likely by an asset manager. So it's a a dull, dry piece of legislation, arguably, but it could be quite important, actually. Yeah, I know
0: Steve Webb, the old pensions minister, seems to have a new job,
2: and he's not happy about this. He's not happy about it, no, he's not. no.
1: Because obviously, apart from the being bad for asset managers, it's not great for life insurance companies that offer drawdown products, right? And we're still finding out what are the um, common practices of people post-Pensions Freedom Day, aren't we? And the, the assumption prior to that was that income drawdown would be a really big area where people would want a bit of income, they maybe want to save a bit more. Um, but any changes that make those uh, I'd just less uh, viable and encourage people to maybe just take it all out, stick it in a buy-to-let property or <laughs> stick it in a savings fund.
0: I, th- I think so. Do you know what? I only think, The more I think about this, I think most people want some kind of uh, certainty in what they're going to be guessing in retirement. And actually, I think, annuities and probably what most people would actually choose were annuity rates half decent.
1: When you su- when you survey anyone about actually what they want out of retirement, if you don't <laughs> mention the word annuity, the thing they describe is an annuity. Indeed.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Or, of course they do. This. Of course they do. No, I love the idea of drawdown. Of course I do. I'm the editor of the Investors Chronicle. Um, but I tell you what, it's easier in theory than it is in practice to make drawdown work as an individual investor. We we see the, this problem all the time in our, in our reader portfolios. How do I make this 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 uh, pot of money I have last, last through retirement? The key word. Last, how how yeah. do how much do I need to grow it by to make sure that if I live to ninety, it's still going to be supporting me? You know, it's just not a simple problem. And I you know whilst I love the idea of pension freedoms too, I, I really don't think they thought about it well enough. Sorry, Steve Webb, you were involved in this, uh, and I don't think that the appropriate amount of work went into making this market work, uh, especially if you wanted to create this Drawdown-driven investment culture.
1: Exactly. I mean, and I think I saw it very much at the time as being a very conservative, individualist policy of letting people have access to their retirement savings. Steve Webb, as the Lib Democrat pensions minister at the time, was very much, "No, this. I was a part of this decision, and I believe in this." And you wonder over time whether he might um, have cause to say, "Well, I don't think that was the best thing for retirement security that that policy was actually taken."
0: No, agreed. Okay, that's enough autumn statement. Lots more on the website, isn't there? <laughs> there is. Uh, yeah. Um, it, I mean, yeah, I say it was, it was a fa- fairly dry um, event, um, but actually some, some interesting subtleties in there, which I think are worth uh, worth digging into. Some of the house building stuff as well, which we're not going to talk about now, um, because we talk about house building far too much. Should we talk about Black Friday? Does anyone care about Black Friday anymore?
2: Well, it's
0: a retail thing.
2: People, people do. I mean, yeah, Black Friday is basically as sort the of a, a day of, sort of a potentially deep discounting by retailers when is to it? Is, entice... it, is it actually Friday or is it today? No, it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow Friday. Right. it's on Friday. I know Friday's tomorrow, but so... uh,
0: I just don't. Know. I, I, you can never quite tell with the retail industry when I mean, when they're going to start. these
2: I, I, things. Th- I think the the concept has a bit of um, elasticity. Let's say that since it started, okay. right. it was to, to sort of briefly um, go through Harriet's article. The history of it is that it was the day after thanksgiving which is today um it's kind of like a boxing day but in the us basically so like in um christmas day here after we have boxing day and there are often lots of sales on boxing day the us kind of started this black friday thing and of course it's you know interconnected world as we are it's become uh, a british phenomenon and i'm sure a european and more widely around the world as well so it's effectively retailers incentivizing some early Christmas shopping. right? Um, But I guess the the problem is, and the the point that that one of the analysts that Harry quotes in the piece is it's quite a strange concept really because arguably what you're doing is you're setting a low, low price at the start of the point where you're going to have arguably most customers through your door because it's Christmas is coming up. So then you spend the run up to Christmas almost trying to Maybe incrementally raise prices from this Black Friday low, so it's a, it is a bit of a curious concept. But
0: I kind of, I kind of get that because I would suggest, not being a retail expert, my i.e. running a shop, but you know, I would suggest the later you left your Christmas shopping, the more you should pay. <laughs> it's like punishment.
2: Oh yeah, and who that's does the Christmas uh, shopping in your house? Is that like the oh, I've done u- half
1: of it already. <laughs> that's like the, that's like the Uber economics it, of uh, the, the, Christmas. But it spending. is, of course, it is. If you go out at Christmas
0: Eve, don't expect a bargain. So you, what? You're, so you're, you're, you're a panic shopper.
2: So I should go you pay more. I should go on January the second and say, can I have my Christmas present uh, a lot cheaper, please?
0: Yeah, well, you can do that, but you've got to square that with your family first. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We had an interesting comment earlier uh, from one of our writers when uh, Bradley was talking about Black Friday and she said, well, you can just wait until the January sales and you get all the same sales. That does stop you getting them as Christmas presents.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Homemade Christmas presents. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, yeah. Black Friday. Pass me by. Passes me by every year. Um, uh, I would be one of those generally penalised rather hard for leaving much of my Christmas shopping too late.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the essence of Harry's article, anyway, to come back to, it, I suppose, is that it's um, in the UK, it's very much become a, an online phenomenon. And um, although it's sort of meant to induce kind of a, a flocking of people to the actual physical store estates, what was kind of seen last year was a lot of online buying. And that's kind of expected to be the case this time as well. Um, is the imported inflation going to be a bit of a drag on it this year?
1: Because I suppose uh, companies like Apple have said this is how much more an Apple Mac now costs. I mean, they've been pretty clear about it and there's a limit to how much retailers can discount
2: you're right there, there, there will be a limit um i i think i guess it depends on a company by company basis it will obviously depend when they ordered things and the chances are they probably didn't order it before the pound fell as much as it did post the eu referendum vote but um there, there, there probably will be an element of that yeah and i guess once it's passed we'll have a bit of a better idea Um, comparatively um, about how much discounting there was the popularity of it which therefore might indicate how much discounting there was Um, but yeah I guess until we're past the event and people start really analyzing it it is kind of difficult to say how much um, any price inflation will uh, be baked into Black Friday discounts Well
0: at least if it's online only people can't be having punch-ups in in the shops over cheap TV. Well, it's
2: not online only, but it's become, in the UK, more uh, an online phenomenon because well, as they're actually pulled out of it after that. That's what you're referring to, basically. that incident am. Of, like, the TV fight, basically. <laughs> so there are some shops who have actually actively pulled away from it altogether, online and well, um, in, in physical form. It is a form. bit
0: grubby, isn't it, really?
2: I mean, it, it doesn't entice me to the shops. It makes me think I, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near them. Too many people.
0: I don't really want to go into shops at the best time. But um <laughs> there you go. Oh okay. Um and actually, I mean on that note, let's briefly go back to Amazon because not being one to go to shops, uh if I can avoid them, Amazon is obviously a first port of call. Um this is the cover feature. We talk about it a lot, um in terms of actually what it what it's doing not in, not sorry not this week we talk about amazon a lot because it because it's just everywhere its tentacles are everywhere certainly in retail uh, always comes up but but actually i guess the crux of this feature is that it's it's extending into lots of other areas that you perhaps wouldn't expect and uh, there are many companies that you may own that that may have uh their their lunch eaten by the encroachment of amazon as it were
1: amazon risk the now, amazon risk uh, no i completely agree and there's some really interesting comment in that i i think on a wider point around amazon i do find it quite interesting they've had um Donald Trump, the uh, U.S. president-elect, has been quite clear on the campaign trail that he has a problem with Amazon. Partly, that's its ownership of the Washington Post, which I think has been critical of him and his candidacy. But what's been quite interesting, he has actually talked about antitrust in terms of Amazon. His his main gripe seems to be about their the proportion of tax that they pay, which obviously is the common gripe to many governments. Um, but he has also kind of raised the specter of uh, raised the question of antitrust in relation to them and the impact that they've had on department stores up and down the U.S. He's right. He is undoubtedly right. And you wonder whether one of the bigger risks to Amazon is that people get more in tune with this question is something I've been researching a bit, this question of vertical consolidation. It's the the idea that you won't, don't have huge concentration in any particular sector, but a massive multinational will go into a lots of different sectors um, and have quite a big impact on the players within those industries. So you wonder the sovereign backlash, which you've had in some regions against Amazon already, how far that might have to play. It might just be that there was a lot of rhetoric from um, Mr. Trump ahead of the election around Amazon. He doesn't really want to do anything about it, but he has been quite explicit about some of the problematic sides to the company and its impact on domestic uh, retailers.
0: I can understand that. I I mean, there's a couple of things that come up here. One, you don't pay tax on revenue, right? Full stop. And Amazon, a lot of its profit goes back into building up its business to be even bigger. So it's not making the huge profits that you might expect it to, given its dominance because it's ploughing a lot of that back into
1: the business. But governments in, are changing. One of the things in the autumn statement was Philip Hammond saying that um, we no longer want companies that are, are you know, making a huge amount of revenue being able to kind of pay less tax because they've carried tax allowances from previous years. They are tinkering with that. So that, as a basic which I agree with you. But that kind of
0: goes against some of also what he was saying about innovation, which is that if you don't allow companies to... Uh, invest the revenues they make in loss-making enterprises, uh, to, to invest the cash that they are or the profits, small profits they might be earning back in. Um, you are essentially discouraging companies that might grow to be very large from, from investing and innovating.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, no, I, I think this is it's why this is a huge quandary. Yeah, this huge quandary is is a whole is a big part of economic policy. You know, how do you promote growth? And you even have the government saying we are going to fund research and development, a lot of stuff that because, is ridiculous. Which is, you know, why aren't companies then investing in this stuff?
0: I, I, the, if the government can can identify areas for research and devel- development that businesses can't, I would be absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, the UK has tried this in the past. We had something, that I'm looking at my course at the moment, called the National Enterprise Board in the 1960s and 70s, which was uh, the brainchild of Harold Wilson, which was supposed to invest in small, innovative startups in the UK to really fire our tech industry forward. I say tech, it was low-tech as we might understand it today, high-tech at the time. Most of the money, as I understand it, that the, the National Enterboard, Enterprise Board that ultimately invested went into British Leyland, propping up a failing car manufacturer. That's Governments why, are rubbish at investing in innovation.
1: That's why people are worried about yeah, a more interve- interventionist government. But they obviously feel there are areas, and um, we've written about this previously, where um, they can help prop up, R
0: I would suggest that it's the job of government to create a a fertile field in which uh, innovative companies can grow. And you do that by having good R&D tax credits policy, uh, not by directing money into particular areas. But that's just my view. Um, The other thing I would say about Amazon is, uh, you know, we live in a free market. And if people want to shop in Amazon, rather than going to Debenhams or Next or Macy's or whatever it might be, well, that's, that's the market. We don't that's live in mar- a completely
1: free market. Come on. We don't live in a free market for broadband.
0: Okay, we're not talking about broadband. We're talking about goods. I can go and buy goods in Dixon's or I can order them online at Amazon. And if Amazon makes life better for me and the shopping experience is better, I'm going to go
1: to, to Amazon.
0: Now, now, And that's the market working.
1: That is the market working as it stands, but we have... um, And that's partially why we have the dominance of certain multinational companies that can play the tax landscape pretty effectively to grow in the areas and to charge their profits in the areas um, where they'll have the least tax spend. And, and, And national governments on both sides of the Atlantic are getting more and more uncomfortable with that status quo. So the only thing I'm suggesting is... Maybe we shouldn't expect that to be the status quo. Okay, so so, so, we,
0: so we we have identified a number of uh, companies that we feel are, are somewhat at risk from uh, Amazon and, and and its encroachment into their to their areas. Royal Mail, for example, being one of them. You know, I got my first Amazon parcel delivered on a Sunday the other day because it'd be completely by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, Royal Mail don't deliver on Sunday. That's brilliant. Amazon, all over. Yes, please. Thank you, Amazon.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it, the parcels business is one that must have burned so many private investors over the past decade or so. I was looking at the history of DX Group, which was you know, pri- used to be listed, bought by a private equity company, had problems bought by a private equity company, came back onto the market, has had the same exact problems, uh, but was just in a bit of a worse state on the balance sheet. But people kept buying back in, and the same competitive pressures. So, yeah, I mean, it's the same problems and Royal Mail obviously on the letters business still has that um, obligation to um, provide letters to all around the country. Yep,
0: yeah, which is unfortunate but that's just that's where it is.
1: That's where it is but that's another example of where you know Emerson can undercut them on and you know a higher margin part of the business as we know that's what parcels are.
0: Ocado this is interesting we talked about this very briefly last week in in, in respect to the Morrison deal but yeah I mean you've got to you've got to be Excuse the French, crap in your pants, <laughs> <laughs> or worried, as, the, as a
2: Carde customer might say. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. It, 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 Frightfully it, nervous. Yes, <laughs> as you said, we did discuss this last week, and it, yeah, it just seems that um, Mor- uh, Morrison's and Amazon, which have recently done a tie-up, um, you know, that that is a problem for cardo.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I think this is fascinating. You know, I really do. I mean it sounds in like um and we didn't really go into this whole regulatory backdrop uh, that you've alluded to. Uh so so maybe the risk will take longer to play out uh than, than we we kind of suggest that if indeed it ever does if governments kind of block the uh the ever seemingly endless expansion of Amazon.
1: Yeah, and where I agree with you and just to kind of balance what I was saying before is that this is I agree with you that this is a very competitive market and with Amazon getting into um, the food delivery market, having its Amazon fresh, partnering with Morrison's, Morrison's partnering with Ocado, but there's lots of other players, traditional grocers, who have huge market shares when it comes to bricks and mortar, um, sales of food. This is, you know, what a lot of people would say is capitalism and action. Absolutely. It's capital mean, going to the areas where it can be best deployed. So the worry for Ocado is they deployed a lot of that early capital and now everyone else is catching up
0: that's true uh some people are gone HMV. we talked about them before you know HMV. you know there was nothing to stop h becoming a, a very good online retailer of music video in you know, developing a streaming service doing everything that, that amazon has done in music uh, and film uh, but it didn't and and that is that
2: and i guess now you've got things like spotify which is trying to be a competitor to what Amazon's trying to do with streaming music and obviously Apple. So as you say, these, these things can be developed. You know, something like HMV could have been a Spotify, quite yeah. arguably, if the right people and the right um, minds were there.
0: Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? The right people, the right minds. And uh, I think this is a, you know, a, bit, a perennial question with, with the, some of the management that we, we, we see are paid enormous sums of money for managing businesses very badly. I say Amazon uh, have a great manager, I'd say H&V perhaps over the years did not there you go Uh, Should we before we run out of time uh, touch on a couple of results we've
1: got lots in this week's issue we've uh, God we've been rambling today, (laughs) in a constructive manner constructive rambling Uh, only things to highlight I suppose Uh, there's lots in there so do have a look but CYBG the challenger bank um, which hasn't been listed for too long has turned its first Pre tax profit in five years, its kind of cost reduction is going well. Um, so, that's one to look at in the Challenger Bank space, which is an interesting space. A lot of people are paying attention. Yeah, to. I've been looking
0: at Challenger Banks myself as a customer, potentially. Uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, exactly. Metro, I've been looking at. It's nice. It's yeah, nice. I mean, nice. it's picking between them. <laughs> it's not usually how you would describe it. Actually, it is nice. how you might describe Metro, isn't it? I mean, this is it's the experience. It's fun. The experience
1: I think they try Bank. and make it fun. It's a store rather than a branch. I mean, the question is, in an uh, area of low interest rates. We can really much difference between any savings account. Who's providing you the best experience as a customer? Who's feeding my dog? Who's feeding your dog? <laughs> Who's letting your children count money? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, money lenders. Uh, but uh, yeah, that isn't as
0: random as it sounds, is it? Ian? No, there is a magic money counting No, issue. not that bit. Uh, money counting, I think, is very standard in
1: banks. Feeding dogs is not... I, Yeah, well, not many banks, well, no other banks have a magic money counting machine that you can guess. I mean, it's literally, they can guess how much money they've put in the thing and then... Really? Yeah, there's a little booth. I mean, it's not a normal... (laughs) You go into one of these uh, stores, it's not a normal branch... Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, indeed. I've not been in one yet. I've
0: seen it, it taking shape. I'm and just to finally, honest.
1: in terms of other results, there's a couple of interesting ones about imported inflation as a result of Brexit. Um, and one that actually Bradley reported on Victoria. So, for example, AI World, is the white goods online company, has said there was some pressure from suppliers on margins, which you could expect for someone kind of importing uh, goods from outside of the UK. Victoria makes its carpets within the UK and has actually benefited... For vis-a-vis its rivals as a result
2: yeah i mean they're saying that their their cost inflation there uh, will be less than right uh, less than that of rivals because um often uh, a lot of carpet is imported from europe whereas they make a lot more of theirs in the uk
0: fascinating i need some new carpet i'll be checking out who stocks victoria carpets uh and on that on that note we have overrun thank you bradley thank you ian Lots and lots uh, more in the magazine. I mean, ludicrous amounts of results this week. It's been, uh, it's been very, very busy. Wealth Management is the subject of the stock screen. Again, another fascinating area uh, in light of the difficulties private investors are having actually finding a good home for their money. Algae uh, uh, Hall has uh, once again delivered the goods uh, on the stock screen front. Uh, seven high-yield small caps for lasting income. Again, the story of the search for yield. Lots in the personal finance and funds section, including uh, a good analysis of the uh, FCA's report on uh, fund management fees, which I also discuss in my editorial. The usual tips, lots of comment. As I say, lots more news, uh, including lots more news on the website relating to the all name. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everybody. The Amazon Risk, 4.70, all good news agents. Or get online, subscribe. See you soon. Bye-bye.